Welcome to the Moses Lake Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. MLBC is led by Pastor Dennis Fountain and exists to help real people going through real life experience real change through our incredible God. We hope this message will be an encouragement to you, and we'd love to hear how God used it in your life. I am super excited for us to be continuing uh, our series this morning, and uh, we've been seeing Jesus as he truly is, and not just how we would like him to be or imagine him to be. All of us have ideas of what we think uh, the perfect God would do, a perfectly holy God. We, we know what we think he would say, how he would act. Uh, but as we come to the Gospels, we see not the God that we imagine or the one that we would create or even how we would act if we were God, uh, but instead we see who God really is and we see him in the person of Jesus and his interactions with people. And so I'm super excited for us to uh, dive into this today. Uh, The title of the message this morning is uh, A Proper Focus. And when we are focused on the correct things in our life, it makes all the difference in the world. Um, I will, I'll pull the pad. Oh, no, never mind. I got it back. My iPad decided it didn't want to uh, behave, but then it did. So we're in luck. So we're going to be talking about a proper focus today. And when I think of focusing, the most uh, central element that I can think of is a little kid playing baseball. And they've got their tiny little uniforms. They've got their bat. They're standing at home plate. They're looking at the pitcher. Uh, They've got friends and family and teammates cheering them on. And I know that all of their coaches and their parents are going to tell them one thing as they're standing with their bat at the home plate waiting for the pitch. What is, say it out loud, what is the one thing you know their coach is going to say to them? Keep your eye on the ball. Focusing on the ball is going to make it so that the kid is able to get a hit. If he's looking at the butterfly out in left field, he's not going to hit the ball. He's not going to do what he needs to do if he is focused on the wrong thing. Uh, My wife recently uh, got a new pair of glasses, and she had had the same pair of glasses since high school. And as soon as she put the new glasses on, she said, wow, I can see things so much clearer And everything outside, kind of like in this picture, everything outside of where the glasses were looked much, much blurrier. Uh, I would not suggest any of you that have glasses or contacts try to drive without them. Uh, You would not be able to focus on what you need to focus on in order to be able to do what you need to do. And as we look at a proper focus in Luke chapter six, it's kind of born out of an improper focus that one of the central characters in the story has. Uh, As as far as looking back on what we've been learning in our study, Jesus in Luke four, five, and six is stirring up a ton of trouble in the religious world. Uh, His hometown of Nazareth rejected his message and tried to throw him off of a cliff. Uh, He healed a paralyzed man and forgave his sins 
which upset the Pharisees uh, because they said only God can forgive sins. They were correct. They just didn't want to view Jesus as God. And then last week, we learned uh, that Jesus frustrated the Pharisees by eating and spending time with the very worst of Jewish society, the traitorous tax collectors or the publicans. Throughout these encounters, Jesus was establishing himself as the ultimate authority and clarifying both to the people and to the Pharisees that the rules and religion that the Pharisees had built around the laws of God was not what God had intended. You see, God had given some specific instructions for his people, Israel, in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He said, okay, here's the laws that need to govern your nation and your lives as the people of God. But the Pharisees said, okay, these 613 commandments, they're great, but they're not specific enough. And we think that we can help God out a little bit by adding some specifics to God's 613 laws. So they built up even further commandments and laws around God's law. And Jesus showed the Pharisees in this passage that we'll read this morning that in desperately attempting to make themselves and everyone around them Holy, the Pharisees had the completely wrong focus, so much so that they rejected the God of the Old Testament that they had given their entire lives to study. From the time they were little kids, the Pharisees would memorize large portions of the Old Testament. Uh, and, so, <clears throat> and sometimes we as Christians uh, want to just avoid the Old Testament altogether, but these Pharisees had it memorized. They knew which number each of the commandments were of the 613. If you asked them, what's number 330, they would be able to tell you. But all of their knowledge of the word of God did not help them because they didn't submit to God himself. He came, uh, John would tell us, he came unto his own and his own received him not. But... (laughs) Uh, We're going to see some different things today about when we have the right focus, not the improper focus that the Pharisees had. But we have to start off learning one specific word, uh, one specific concept, otherwise we're going to be lost the entire time. And that word is Sabbath. And the Sabbath was technically Friday at sundown to Saturday at sundown. And this was a sacred time for the Jews for two particular reasons, one of which we read in Genesis chapter 2. It says, The seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because on it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. So when God was creating the world, he spent six days uh, creating the various aspects of it. But on the seventh day, it was all completed, And so he rested from the work. It wasn't that he was tired, but he ceased doing work on the seventh day. And it says that he sanctified it. He set it apart, marked it as a holy day. So then when God was uh, creating the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 20 with the Ten Commandments, he gave this as one of the Ten Commandments to Israel. He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. For six days ye shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath 
arrest of the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work or your son or your daughter, your manservant or your maidservant or your cattle or the stranger who resideth with you. So one of the 10 commandments was remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy and don't do any work on it. That was the command from God. And the Sabbath was God's beautiful promise to Israel that he would provide for them even when they were not working. So whereas some of the nations around them would be busy seven days a week working and trying to maintain their fields and their crops or maybe their livestock, God told the nation of Israel, on the seventh day, don't do any work. I will work for you on the seventh day and through only six days of labor and one day where you just rest, you relax, you worship, you remember that I am working on your behalf. You don't have to be at the grind, so to speak, seven days a week. Take time to relax and rest and realize that I am for you, that I am with you, that I'm working on your behalf. So the Sabbath, wonderful promise from God. But the Pharisees had turned it into the absolute worst day of the week. They had 39 categories of sins that you could break the Sabbath through. So it wasn't 39 rules that meant you'd broken the Sabbath. There were 39 categories and then tons of specific sins underneath those categories. Uh, some of those included if you doused a fire that counted as working on the Sabbath. So uh, back in those times, you know, you want to heat up a thing of lentils. Uh, you can't douse the fire. It's, it's just got to stay there. Maybe you can, you know, pour out the, the beans into a bowl, uh, but that's as much as you can do. You cannot douse the fire on the Sabbath. This is what the Pharisees said. This wasn't, uh, this wasn't in God's word, uh, but it was in some of the specifics that the Pharisees had set up. They also said you could not walk more than 3,000 steps from your house. You could walk 3,000 steps, that wasn't work, but if you walked 3,001 steps, that was work. Unless you planted, uh, prior to the Sabbath, you planted some sort of food thing there, you know, maybe a tomato or some corn. Uh, if you planted something 3,000 steps from your house, then that counted as an extension of your house so you could get around the incredibly weird 3,000 number by having a plant there that counted as an extension of your house. So then you could go 3,000 more steps from the plant. So you could see this was all just useless religious drivel that had no basis in what God's point in the Sabbath was. The point was rest, relax. I'm working on your behalf. You don't have to work. Uh, they also said you could not help anyone with a non-life-threatening injury. So if someone's bleeding out, then I guess you can help them. I guess you can take care of them. But if someone has a broken leg, you can't uh, put a splint on it. You can't help them out until Saturday at sundown. If it can wait a day without them dying, then it has to. Otherwise, you are working. So the, the Pharisees here had just completely ruined the best day of the week, the day that was set aside to rejoice in what God was doing for the people. And instead it was, what am I doing or not doing to prove how holy I am? 
However, as we see Jesus's actions and his interactions with the Pharisees here in Luke chapter six, we'll see our main thought today that a proper focus on Jesus's lordship will cause us to care for others. A proper focus on Jesus's lordship will cause us to care for others. Let's do this. We're gonna stand. We're gonna read just one verse from our passage and then we'll pray and be seated And then we'll walk through the passage together this morning and then look at two applications at the end. But I want us to read this verse together, Luke 6 and verse number five, Jesus here speaking to the Pharisees. And he said unto them that the son of man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Let's pray and then we'll begin this morning's message. Dear Lord, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for uh, the promises and the comfort that we'll see this morning. God, we ask that everything that you speak to our hearts about, we'd be intentional in doing, uh, that we wouldn't come to your word just as a religious exercise, just something to uh, t- just something to do on a Sunday, but instead we would have a desire to meet with you, to hear from you, and to follow and obey you. We love you, God, and we pray all this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> So we begin the story with uh, kind of an innocuous action by Jesus and his disciples. It says, and it came to pass on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the cornfields and his disciples plucked the ears of corn and did eat, rubbing them in their hands. Now, to a 21st century American, it looks from this verse like the disciples are stealing someone else's corn. Now, this is... uh, This is British English, so uh, they use the word maize for what we use for corn. Uh, Spanish would kind of have the same type of word for that. So these are grain fields that they're going through. And so the disciples are walking through these grain fields, and they pick some grain, and they take it, they rub it in their hands, and they eat the grain, Uh, much like we would maybe do with a peanut, that you would break the outer shell, you'd eat the peanut, scrape off all of the shell. You don't want to eat that portion of it. Now, God had set up in the Old Testament that there were certain areas of a farmer's field that he could not harvest. Uh, It was specifically to be set aside for those that were hungry, those that maybe uh, didn't have a field, didn't own land, that they couldn't farm their own food, or maybe those that had fallen on particularly hard times and couldn't grow their own crop or harvest or weed or any of those things for their crops. It was kind of the welfare system for ancient Israel, as well as uh, for people that were just traveling through God had set this aside, so if you're hungry, you're walking through a field, you you can't take a basket with you, you can't harvest someone else's stuff, but you can grab as much as you can carry and have some snacks for the road. So here the disciples aren't stealing, they're following what God had outlined in his word. But the Pharisees show up. Verse two says, and certainly the Pharisees said unto them, why do ye that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath day? So I've already just outlined for you, they weren't breaking any laws. God said, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy, do no work. Uh, Is grabbing a snack a lot of work? No. Uh, Maybe if you have an extraordinarily fancy snack, maybe. Uh, But this is just grabbing and eating. However, Uh, The disciples here had not broken one or two of the Pharisees' extra commandments. 
they'd broken four, threshing, reaping, winnowing, and preparing food. So the Pharisees had four counts against the disciples, and they are bringing this accusation. However, in verse number three, Jesus answering them said, have ye not read so much as this, what David did when he was hungry and those that were with him? So Jesus here comes to the rescue. And aren't you glad that Jesus is our advocate, our intercessor, that when, uh, as scripture describes him, the accuser of the brethren brings our charges, our accurate charges of the wrong things that we've done before a holy God, that it says Jesus intercedes for us. He pleads his righteousness, his work. He says that we are his people. And he doesn't listen to the accuser much as Jesus did not listen to the accusers of the disciples here. And how he answers the Pharisees here is incredibly insulting to them. Uh, these were men that had devoted their entire lives to memorizing every minute portion of the Old Testament. This would be something akin to uh, accusing a, uh, a scientist with mul multiple PhDs. Didn't you go to kindergarten? Uh, this is that kind of rebuke and slap in the face of the Pharisees. Uh, he goes, haven't you read? Well, of course they had read it, but he's telling them, you've been focusing on entirely the wrong things here. He says, what David did. Now he gives an illustration of the life of King David, who was kind of the second most esteemed person in Jewish culture. Number one would be Moses, the lawgiver, the one who brought the children of Israel out in the Exodus, uh, who gave them the Ten Commandments and all of the laws that made Israel set apart and unique as a nation. The second most important one would be David, the king of the United Kingdom of Israel. Uh, he was the one that was a warrior and a prophet and a psalmist. And so he, uh, he tells them this story that they would have known from 1 Samuel. And he describes it in verse number four, how he went into the house of God and did take and eat the showbread and gave also to them that were with him, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priests alone. So he gives the story of David before he was king. He was being hunted by King Saul, who was jealous of David and knew that God had set him aside to one day be the king over all Israel. And so Saul was trying to kill David. David's on the run. He has some of his men with him. And they happened by this one particular tabernacle where a priest was. Now, he mentions here the showbread, and this was every Friday night at the beginning of the Sabbath, they would put 12 freshly baked loaves of bread on uh, right by the altar of the Lord. Uh, the 12 loaves of bread symbolizing uh, the 12 tribes of Israel and saying, basically, God, we realize that we are in your presence, uh, just as these loaves of bread are right by the altar, that we are reliant on you, that we are near you, we have our dependence on you. It's God is with us. Sometimes you'll see this referenced as uh, the bread of the presence, the show bread. And the bread would stay there, all 12 loaves, for one week. And then at the next Friday night, they would take all those loaves of bread off and would put 12 newly uh, freshly baked loaves by the altar. And the 12 old, week old uh, loaves of bread that came off of the altar, 
were supposed to be for the priests is what God had uh, lined out in the Old Testament, that they weren't supposed to sell it to people and say, okay, for the low price of 7.99 pence, uh, you can get the special bread of the presence. Uh, that's not what it was for. And it wasn't for just anyone to come in off the street and just eat casually. Uh, this was bread that had been near the altar. And so as a result, there needed to be some respect, some awe. But what Jesus outlines here for the Pharisees is you're so focused on this minutia around the law of God that you're forgetting the purpose. The purpose of the Sabbath was not that you could point fingers at people and say, ha, you were threshing, reaping, winnowing, and preparing food on the Sabbath. That wasn't the point. The point was relax and realize that God is working on your behalf. And here, the point was that David and his men were hungry and in danger and they needed sustenance. And so the priest gave these loaves of bread to David. So while technically a violation of the law, it was following the spirit of the law, that this was unique bread reminding of God's presence. And that's what David, that's what God did for David in that moment, that God was with David and helping him. So he gives this example of why are you getting after my disciples when even the second greatest person in Israel's history sometimes lightly violated these particular laws, but not the spirit of the law because it's about people. It's not about random control. So he gives that illustration first, David, and then he says this. He said unto them that the son of man is Lord also of the Sabbath. Now, we read that verse and we know some of the words, it doesn't necessarily jump off to us like it would have for the Pharisees. You see, for the Pharisees, they knew Daniel 7, 14 and the prophecy about the son of man that would come in glory down from heaven and reign over the earth forever and ever. This was Jesus's specific messianic title that he was the chosen one. He was the one that was going to come and rule the world. And they knew about this promise. Uh, Jesus later references it uh, even on his trial. And people are so outraged that he would take this title for himself. So he says here, I am the Messiah and I am Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the master. I'm the one in charge of the Sabbath. Now, if my wife tells my son and daughter that they need to play in B's room, does B have the authority to say, nah, I don't think so. We're going to go play in another room. Does he have the authority to do that? No, he's not the one who made the rule. He's not the one in charge. My wife is. So Jesus here is giving a very specific claim that he is God, that he is the one in charge of the Sabbath. God was the one that gave the Sabbath, and to claim to be in charge of the Sabbath was to claim to be God himself, and that's exactly what Jesus does here. This, however, is not just a like cruel trump card to be able to say, I am better than you, I'm, uh, I'm in charge. This is a plea to the Pharisees who knew all of the promises of what would happen when the Messiah would come. This is a plea to them of you're focusing on the wrong thing. You're focusing on the grain and the disciples, and you should be focusing on the fact that God himself is here with you. 
So we see that story. And then in verse number six, Luke takes us to another time. So he's gone through a few of these examples. Uh, the Pharisees being angry at Jesus for forgiving sins. The Pharisees being angry at Jesus for being with uh, sinners and for, uh, and for being with them, as we learned about last week. Being angry at Jesus for his disciples breaking the Sabbath laws, uh, their laws, not God's. And then lastly, here in verses number six through 11, he gives kind of the end of uh, all of these areas where Jesus is angering the Pharisees. It came to pass also on another Sabbath that he entered into the synagogue and taught. And there was a man whose right hand was withered. Now, a synagogue was uh, a little bit less like this setup. Uh, you would have four big uh, pillars that would go up, and it was kind of more uh, stadium bench seating uh, that would wrap entirely around. So there would be people uh, sitting all the way around where Jesus was. Uh, there was no raised platform or anything. Everything was on level ground. So Jesus is here, and there is a man whose right hand was withered. As we've seen already in the book of Luke, Jesus has power to heal, to restore, to make whole again. And the Pharisees knew this too. It says, and the scribes and Pharisees watched him, whether he would heal on the Sabbath day, that they might find an accusation against him. So one of the Pharisees' commandments on the Sabbath day was you couldn't help anyone out unless it was life-threatening. This man wasn't bleeding out, so therefore in the Pharisees' minds, to help this person was equivalent to breaking God's law. This was work on the Sabbath to help this man. And the passage doesn't say whether or not the Pharisees had brought this specific man in for this purpose or whether this was just the synagogue that the man attended every week. But the Pharisees, seeing the man, thought, how can we use this guy in our fight against Jesus. See in verse number eight, but he knew their thoughts and said to the man which had the withered hand, rise up and stand forth in the midst. And he arose and stood forth. So from where the man had been sitting, Jesus brought him out and stood him in front of everyone. This wasn't something that was going to be privately or secretly done. This was going to be an open rebuke of the Pharisees' legalism in this moment. Now, if there was a person here this morning that had a deformity and I had the, the power to be able to heal the man of that deformity, all of you would expect me to. You would think it would be rude if I would not help out the person when I had the opportunity and the ability to. But the Pharisees didn't want that because it went against their religious system that they had set up while not at all going against God's laws. And so Jesus poses a question to them with the man with the withered hand standing in front of them. Then said Jesus unto them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? I'll ask you guys the same question. Answer out loud. Is it lawful on the Sabbath day to do good or to do evil? Is it lawful on the Sabbath day to save life or to destroy it? Obviously, these are rhetorical questions that Jesus uses to show the hypocrisy 
and really the evil heartedness of the Pharisees. They were trying to prove some sort of battle about whose interpretation of the law was more correct, whereas Jesus was concerned about doing good and saving life. And so then in verse number 10, and looking round about upon them all, he said unto the man, stretch forth thy hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored whole as the other. So Jesus, once establishing in front of everyone, it is good to do good and to save life, not to do evil and to destroy it. Think of James 4.17 that says, to him that knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. The Pharisees had allowed this religious apathy to make them not care about the people in front of them as long as they felt that they were being holy. But I see here in Jesus's actions that he restores the man as whole as the other. And I think about that as Jesus did physically for this man, Jesus does spiritually for everyone that will receive him. He wants to restore us. You see, God created a perfect world, completely free of death or sin or disease or wrongdoing. However, mankind rebelled and brought sin and death into the world. And now every person struggles with not doing and thinking and saying the things that God would want us to. Instead, we rebel against him. But Jesus, God the Son, came to rescue us, to redeem us. Scripture says that he lived a perfectly sinless life. He never did a single sin. There was no blemish on the account of Jesus. And the Bible says that he died in our place and was buried for three days. See, Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin, what we get for the wrong things that we think and say and do is death, separation from God. But Jesus took his perfect, sinless, clear, blank account and on the cross, he took all of our sins onto his account. And he paid for every single one of them, suffering that separation from God, suffering the payment for the sins of the entire world. The Bible says that as he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. It was paid in full. It was completely atoned for. The Bible says that after he was buried, he rose from the dead three days later and ascended to heaven after 40 days. That he did not stay in the grave. He didn't just pay the price for sin, but then he rose again, emphasizing that he was the Lord. He was God. He had reign over sin and death. The grave itself could not hold him. Instead, he was alive forevermore. And then he ascended to heaven. He told his disciples that he was going to prepare a place for them in heaven. And then the Bible says that he will return one day. So the question to you this morning is, have you ever turned to Jesus as the Lord, the master, the one in charge of your life? Have you turned from doing what the Pharisees were doing and trying their best at life to set up their own righteousness, to set up their own way and approach to God that ran contrary to what Jesus was doing have you tried to live your life without acknowledging Jesus and turning to him alone for salvation? 
because the Bible says that whoever calls on the Lord will be saved. It says that with the mouth, we, we make confession. We, we say that Jesus is Lord of our lives. We confess that his righteousness, his work on the cross is the only thing that can save us. And it says with the heart, we believe. And we say, Jesus, what you say in your word, I believe as true. I believe that you really did come, live a perfect life, died in my place. You were buried, that you rose again and that you will come again one day. As we believe that, scripture says that Jesus saves us. He saves us both from a life without God. He saves us from, uh, if, we, if we die, he saves us from eternity in hell. He saves us from punishment. And instead, we are reconciled. We are restored to God. That he gives us new purpose and a mission to help other people be reconciled to God. He gives us a new family that we are with and we gather with each and every week to proclaim what he has done in us and to encourage each other to live as though Jesus is our Lord, as though he is the one in charge. Have you turned to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, trusting him and his righteousness? This is not what the Pharisees did. Even though they had seen God work a literal miracle right in front of their faces, their response was this in verse 11. They were filled with madness, with fury, with rage. And they communed, they took counsel with one another what they might do to Jesus. This was religion's response to Jesus. It was, you didn't follow our rules. You didn't do what we wanted you to do. And so we want nothing to do with the Lord. As we look at this passage, this main central thought is that the Pharisees, in trying to set up their own righteousness, completely ignored the righteousness and work and person and mission of Christ. They said, we want nothing to do with that. But we see Jesus, even though he's being rejected, he still tells them exactly who he is, the Son of Man, the coming Messiah, that he was Lord, that he was God himself. He, he told them that what he was doing was good and that he was saving life and not doing evil or destroying it. But they were focused not on the Lord, but on legalism. And we're gonna look at two applications to end today's sermon. And the first of these is, that we ought to focus on lordship and not legalism. Uh, as we see in the Pharisees' lives, legalism says, God didn't fill in the blanks for you, so I will. Uh, the Pharisees here had the commandment from God that they were not supposed to work on the Sabbath day. But the Pharisees didn't feel that God had supplied enough information for the people. He didn't tell them how much walking counted as work. He didn't tell them what food preparation things were allowed or not allowed. He didn't tell them if they were able to help out someone else on the Sabbath or if that counted as work. And so the Pharisees filled in the details. Legalism says what God says I technically do. 
you can see this when Jesus says in Matthew 23, 4, speaking about the Pharisees, they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers, but all their works they do to be seen by men. The Pharisees were technically following every iota of God's law. They were technically doing that, but they were completely ignoring what God had said about loving and caring for others. Or uh, as we see earlier in the story of people being able to eat when they are hungry or people being able to be healed by a miracle of God. So while they were technically following God's law, they were omitting the most important parts. Legalism says what others say you must do. We can see this in verse number two, when the Pharisees said to the disciples, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Legalism wants everyone to look, think, act, and speak just like them. Not necessarily in alignment with the word of God, but in alignment with the particular person. The Pharisees couldn't imagine a world in which someone would come to a different conclusion about what it meant to not work on the Sabbath than breaking a peanut, eating the peanut, and throwing away the crumbs. They couldn't imagine a world in which someone else didn't see that as work. Legalism says, what others do must match me. Uh, Luke writes about this later in Acts 15.5. He says, but some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So here, several years later, the Pharisees, some of them had believed, but even then, as they saw Gentile believers getting saved, they said, well, we're circumcised and we follow the law of Moses and we follow Jesus, so therefore, all of these followers of Jesus must also be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. So legalism says, God didn't fill in the blanks for you, so I will, but... I love this quote that I heard from uh, Pastor Josh Tice down in Las Vegas. He says this, where the Holy Scriptures are silent, the Holy Spirit will bring specificity to the individual believer. Where God's word doesn't give a specific, God's Holy Spirit living inside every single person that believes, the Holy Spirit will bring specifics to your life for you. So for some people, uh, maybe some of those Pharisees in Acts 15, they could not, in good conscience, give up following the law of Moses and all of the individual commands of the Old Testament. They couldn't give that up without feeling as though they were sinning. But for these new Gentile believers who had never interacted with the law of Moses, they were just following Jesus and following after him. And so for those individual believers, there was, no, uh, there was no push, there was no good reason for them to mimic exactly what the Pharisees were doing because the Holy Spirit had not told them to do that. I love this quote from the Baptist Confession of Faith in 1689. It says, God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it. <clears throat> Here we see that God is Lord of your conscience. Your conscience is built into you by God and is specifically put so that rightly fed and formed by the word of God and by the Holy Spirit that in moments when you don't know what you should do, your conscience will tell you, do this, 
don't do this. Rightly formed. But, as they say here in this next line, so that to believe such doctrines, the doctrines or commandments of men, or obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith. An absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. So here you have the Pharisees were telling all of the people, uh, just follow what we're saying. Don't read God's word for yourself. We'll read it for you. And we have all of these outlines of all the specifics that we think you should follow. But what this resulted in was a complete and blind obedience and reliance on the Pharisees and completely cut God out of the equation. You didn't need God to speak to your heart about any particular matter or any how to apply any areas of scripture. You just had the Pharisees for that. And so uh, as believers, we ought to focus on Christ's lordship and not legalism. What does that mean practically? What he says, we do. Christ's lordship means what he says, we do. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is, pardon me, which is your reasonable service. Whatever God says in his word, we ought to do. There shouldn't be anything that we read in scripture and say, Oh, that's kind of inconvenient. I, I don't want to do that. There's nothing in scripture that we should come across and say, I won't be as popular if I do this or if I tell someone about the Lord or if I fess up to the fact that maybe I lied to someone or that I stole from someone. Uh, I, that won't work out really great for me. Whatever God says in his word, we ought to do. If he is Lord, if he is in charge, then that means that we ought to follow him. Secondly, Christ's lordship means what others say doesn't distract. The Apostle Paul said this in Colossians 2, so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Uh, it didn't matter what the Pharisees were saying when the disciples were with Jesus, that it wasn't going to distract them from doing what they knew was right, despite what the Pharisees said and what their commandments and their legalistic rules had for them. Same thing with Jesus as he's interacting uh, with everyone at the synagogue, that the opinions of the Pharisees wasn't going to distract him from the mission that God had given him, that he was going to do good. He was going to do what was right in every situation. So Christ's lordship means what others say won't distract me from what God says. And lastly, what others do doesn't distract me. Uh, we can see this in Romans 14, verses 9 through 12. He says, For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. So Jesus died and rose again for everyone, so he is Lord. He is the one that is in charge. He says, But why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. So it doesn't matter if uh, Drew thinks that uh, bluegrass music is the best music. I don't have to spend my time telling him uh, that bluegrass is, is uh, terrible and uh, acapella barbershop is actually God's chosen music. I don't have to fight with him on that. <clears throat> 
What others do doesn't have to match everything that I'm doing. Now, when it comes to uh, things that are clearly, explicitly in the word of God, uh, we, would be, uh, we would be remiss if we didn't encourage one another to follow after what God says, that what he says we do. But when it comes to things here, like in the passage where the Pharisees were trying to say, you're not working, but we, our interpretation says that you are working in four different ways, well, it, it distracted them from the actual focus. It got their focus off of the Lord of the Sabbath and instead turned it on to lesser things. So what others do shouldn't distract us. We shouldn't, uh, as Paul says in those verses, we shouldn't judge other people or show contempt for other people for things that have nothing to do with the word of God. So we ought to focus on lordship, not legalism. And then lastly, we ought to focus on restoration, not rage. Jesus was busy, uh, well, I'll, I'll say this. While the Pharisees were bickering over details, Christ was busy delivering. While the Pharisees were wondering if helping someone who wasn't going to die that day, while they were wondering if that was okay, Jesus was worrying about the man. He was worrying about someone that had undergone tremendous suffering over the years. He was focused on people. And while they were outraged at Jesus's kindness and his actions, Jesus was busy helping others. The Pharisees viewed the man as a pawn in their battle whereas Jesus viewed the man as the point. This can be us so often, that we don't see people as the goal, as the point. We don't see others as valued and loved by God and therefore in need of Jesus and in need of that restored relationship with him. We view people as, oh, they're my enemy because of this reason or that reason. Many of us <clears throat> have that family member that you just really hope they don't bring up politics. And if we're not careful, we can have a, a hatred or we can view them as a problem or we can view them as uh, something other than the point. The point is people. The point is not uh, my list of things. That was the Pharisees, one of their greatest problems, that they completely neglected caring for people and instead, they just had their gigantic list that they had to be seen as holy and really close to God by men. And instead, Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. So whereas the Pharisees saw last week Jesus interacting with the publicans and sinners, they viewed that as a violation of Jesus's holiness. And they were concerned about the rules that Jesus was breaking Jesus was concerned about people that did not know God, that had been written off by everyone else and outside of his intervention would not have a relationship with God. And so he went to them and he loved them and he cared for them. The Pharisees were concerned about people working by breaking the grain and snacking on it. And Jesus said, no, these people are hungry. They have basic needs that need met. And the Pharisees said, you can't heal anyone unless they're absolutely going to die today. And Jesus said, it's, it's not about that. It's about restoration, not rage. The world says, you vote different, I hate you. You look different, I hate you. You do wrong, I outcast you. No matter what side of anything that you are on, this is how the world interacts. 
But Jesus says, you're made by God, I love you. And just to let everyone know, everyone you see made and loved by God. (laughs) So we ought to love every person. Jesus says, you do wrong, I forgive you. Uh, We learned about that in our growth groups this past Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, that we ought to have forgiveness for others because Jesus forgave us and Jesus forgave everyone. Jesus says, you don't know God, I share him with you. Even in this passage, we could, we could picture Jesus being outraged at the Pharisees that were putting these tremendous burdens on people and turning God's holy best day of the week, a day of promise and rest into a, okay, well, did you follow all the rules today? Uh, he could be angry at them for that. He could be angry at them for being uncaring, but instead, uh, as we saw in verse number five, he gives one of the clearest signs that he ever gave to anyone of the Son of Man, the Messiah, is Lord of the Sabbath. I am God. I'm right in front of you. Focus on the right thing. We could picture Jesus being outraged, but instead, even in these moments of confrontation, he's still giving the gospel. He's still giving Trust in me. Turn to me as the Lord. Stop trying to set yourselves up and start obeying the Lord. A proper focus on Christ's lordship means that instead of us being focused on things or rules, we're focused on caring for others you will have limited amounts of interaction with people this week. Maybe with a neighbor, maybe with a friend, maybe with family. You have limited amounts of words and sentences and conversations that you are able to have with people this week. What are you going to spend your time talking about? What are you going to spend your time doing? Are you going to focus on Christ's lordship instead of legalism or trying to make everyone else exactly like you? Are you going to focus on restoration over rage? Are you going to focus on building other people up, of showing them the wonderful relationship that they can have with God? Maybe with another brother or sister in Christ, you wouldn't just shoot the breeze, but you would talk to one another about maybe uh, someone that you're witnessing to, maybe at work or in your family, telling them about Jesus and asking that brother and sister in Christ to uh, pray that that person would be saved. Maybe you would uh, talk with another brother or sister about a sin that has been attacking you in your life and you would say, hey, would you pray for me about this? This has really been harming my relationship with the Lord and I would love to have victory over it. Whatever way it is, we ought to have a proper focus this week, a focus that says, I'm gonna focus on the Lord and I'm gonna focus on restoration. I'm gonna share Jesus with others. I'm gonna encourage other believers in Christ to be able to share. I'm gonna encourage them in their walk with the Lord. I'm gonna help others. See, the Pharisees viewed their religion as an excuse for inaction. Uh, they said, oh, we're, we're super religious, we're super holy, so we can't help. Uh, but Jesus, the most holy, uh, truly the most religious, God himself, he came and he helped people. When we have opportunity to help, we ought to. 